0: Hello and welcome to the fifth in a series of podcasts by Arts Council England looking at key digital topics brought to light by the digital R&D Fund for the Arts. That's the seven million pound investment in digital projects across the arts sector delivered by Arts Council England, Nesta and the Arts and Humanities Research Council in partnership. This programme is all about education and learning in the arts. How can digital technology assist in education of the young and the mature, those with disabilities, and perhaps those for whom the arts have previously not been accessible? In this podcast, we'll be looking at what technology is available for young learners in the classroom.
1: What most classrooms have now got is the computer, there are speakers, there's a projector and there is the capacity to play these recordings, and by having them available on a website, they're just there, you can just immediately access them.
0: How the British Library are promoting digital education with their English online website.
1: This is an opportunity for
2: us to show the context, so digitising historical, sociological, and political documents that illustrate the perspective in which that author was writing
0: and how some believe technology should replace a defunct education system.
3: This system we have was actually built in the 18th century to serve an industrialised society. Well now we're an information society and information is more freely available to us in ways it wasn't available before. <laughs>
0: but first to my guests on the programme today. Joining me in the studio are Max Whitby from Touch Press, Dave Patton from the Science Museum, and Kirsten Campbell-House from an organisation called Soda. Let's get a bit of background first of all. Kirsten, tell us something about Soda. What do you do?
4: Well, Soda is a small creative digital agency based in London, and it's been around for about 16 years we make things that bridge the physical and digital divide. I think the thing we're probably the best known for, though, is Soda Constructor, which is a web app where you use physics simulations to build models.
0: And Max Whitby, on the Touch Press website, you state books are one of the defining inventions of civilization, and today they're poised for a revolution. Tell us more.
5: Well, I do believe that's the case. And one of the ways that books are evolving is by moving, of course, onto electronic devices becoming e books. We are not interested at Touch Press in e books just as if they were transferring the text. The kind of books that we make are the sort of books that Harry Potter would open, where things pop off the page and where the reader gets to interact with the content. And I think for Learning, that's a really exciting development. Right. And Dave Patton, the Science Museum, I suppose there you have a vast array already of uh,
0: initiatives for education
6: and learning. We do. And the educational audience is a big part of our audience. We get 400,000 school children a year into the museum. Mm. So part of our offer is targeted towards that group of people. We're interested in digital technologies, not just for the things we do physically in the museum, but it's a way of getting the museum out to the public.
0: Well, we'll explore that throughout the programme, but I'd like to begin the discussion today by looking at some strategies for digital learning within the arts sector. And uh, this is perhaps a provocative thought from Mick Landman from Digital Education Brighton.
3: The idea that one teacher teaches 30 kids the same thing at the same time in the same place, that's no longer necessary because with digital technology... Each of those kids can be learning the things that they want to learn that's appropriate to them. This also, of course, changes the whole notion of place, because if you can use digital technology and online technology and mobile technology, of course, you don't have to cram 30 kids into a classroom. There's a whole movement at the moment called BYOD, which is bring your own device. This is a movement around uh, recognizing that technology is there, that everybody has technology, And that within an education environment, they ought to be able to avail themselves of the technology that they're comfortable with. Uh, 95% of schools in this country, extraordinarily, ban the use of smartphones in class. Now, kids, they're all taking their smartphones and feature phones into the classroom. They're using them in the classroom. They're very adept at texting underneath the desk. And yet, schools still choose to ban phones. So... What is happening at the moment? The kids are using their mobile phones anyway, but this is completely unregulated. Would it not be better for schools to say, not only is it okay to bring your smartphones into class, it's compulsory to do so, and we want to see them on top of your desk. Then you can control that environment. And then, by the way, oh, we've got all of these things, which are really good computers, generally very up-to-date. Well, maybe we can make some use of those within our lessons.
0: Well, let's pick up on that point made by Mick Landman there. That idea of BYOD, bring your own device, is that something that's practical or
6: desirable? Dave Patton, an approach that you'd encourage at the Science Museum? Absolutely. I mean, we've spent, I guess, the last year putting infrastructure in place to support that. We recognise that people are increasingly bringing smartphones into the museum. We want to provide opportunities for people to use those phones. The biggest barrier for that in the museum environment was the unpredictability of cost. So we've just spent the last year putting in wireless infrastructure so that we take away that cost, now looking at rolling out various pilot programs onto people's mobile devices.
0: Is compatibility a problem though? Because I presume
6: (coughs) that if everybody's bringing in a different kind of device, they're not all going to be able to read the systems in the same way. It's an issue at the moment, but it's probably an issue that will go away in a couple of years' time. We're choosing to experiment on particular types of devices because we want to prove technique. Once we're confident in that, then we'll roll that out to more platforms.
0: Kirsten, you're shaking your head. You you don't agree?
4: Well, I agree absolutely with everything your speaker there said. And in the science museum, that's a perfect environment where you can utilise smartphones for this kind of thing. Schools are a very different story, I Mm. think, at the moment. Hopefully, in a few years, it won't be such an issue when we have all agreed on what bit of kit we want students to be using. But at the moment, telling kids that it's compulsory to bring a smartphone into class, that's going to cause all kinds of problems because not everyone can afford one. Everyone's got a different kind. Mm. You know, one of the things we do at Soda at the moment is we're working on an iPad app for primary school kids to help them with their literacy in maths. And we're working with a publisher towards that. So There is a move towards this, definitely, but it's slow in the school's environment and it's not going to be happening now.
7: And Max
0: Whitby at Touch Press, uh, I asked Dave there about that question of compatibility. Is that
5: something that you're having to bear in mind when you're developing apps and resources? What we're interested in doing is producing the kind of materials that a teacher can use to get a class really engaged and excited And I think that communal learning, where there's a kind of campfire and people gather around it and get excited about something, is really important. That is how we learn. And learning on your own, out in the dark, you won't necessarily pick up all those things. There's a place for that. But I'm really interested in strengthening the teacher's position with electronic approaches. Well, I'd like to
0: move it on now and uh, look at some of the tools of the trade for digital learning within the arts. Uh, A company based in Worcester called C&T teach drama to kids using new technologies, as Paul Sutton, C&T's artistic director, explains.
8: One of them is called The Living Newspaper, which is an online reinvention of a 1920s theatre form, which was about making documentary dramas about topical issues and news stories of the day. We've kind of created an online version of that, where young people are plunged into a kind of secret, covert network where they work as citizen journalists, uncovering news stories and sharing that through a range of social media online. Another one is called Strata, which is a digital mapping tool that allows young people to build digital maps of their local areas, but not really as tools to enable people to find their way around, but as a way of exploring local history, themes and content within their local area, aspects of the curriculum. When you finish making your Strata map, that's published to tablets and smartphones, so that local residents in the area can navigate their way around these maps, click on multimedia content, and see the work that young people have created.
0: Well, that's a resource being developed by C and T. Max, a moment ago, you talked about your titles that you're developing. Give us a couple of examples.
5: Well, there's one we're just about to release in partnership with Michael Morpurgo, the children's writer. We've mm. taken his fantastic book, Warhorse, and produced an interactive edition. And of course, Warhorse is set during the First World War. And it's pretty chronological. And so one of the things we do in that title is have Michael perform War Horse. But also, as the story unfolds, we provide a historical timeline. And what we're hoping is that children reading the story, getting interested in the events and the circumstances, are motivated to dive off into a historical timeline and find out more about the First World War, hear experts talk about the First World War, and use the kind of emotional power of a great storyteller to engage people with a subject. The clip we just heard was, I guess, advocating a different approach, which I think is equally good and valid, and Mm. that's to engage people with a subject through building something, especially building something together. The difficulty with that approach is often it makes an amazing presentation when you see somebody explain how it should work, but actually putting a complicated tool like that into the hands of a group of children, it sometimes can be very successful, but many times people get lost and don't quite understand how to use it. Mm. And so we quite like to kind of package information and knowledge in ways that can be called on when you're stuck. And Kirsten Campbell-House, give us an example of something that you're
0: developing there at Soda at the moment and some of the challenges that you're facing.
4: Well, one of the things we're developing at the moment is an iPad app called Movil. It's a version of Soda Constructor, but for younger children. I think some of the challenges we've been finding with that are crafting a user interface that is intuitive for children. One of the things we like about the iPad is that you don't just have to have one person using the iPad. You mm. can have a group of two or three kids around it, and it sort of encourages a bit of interaction. What I don't like personally is shots of classrooms where each child is hunched over one right, device. Right. I think that's not really what we want in education. We want to encourage collaboration and teamwork and And discussion. And an element of
0: play as well is is what you're bringing in there. Which brings us on, actually, and in an earlier podcast in the series, we heard how gaming is being used throughout the arts sector Here's a survey of teachers conducted in 2010 by Nesta. 67% of teachers said they used video games and animation technology to support learning in the classroom. All of them, 100%, said they would use it again. Well, here's Paul Sutton of C&T again on the ways that gaming can play a part in education.
8: Games and gamification are very much at the heart of young people's culture and their values. And so it seems very sensible to us to build that into our applications and our approach to making creative practice in classrooms with young people. We don't see a huge difference between using techniques in theatre, such as Bawa's Forum Theatre methodologies, or things like role play or process drama techniques and exactly some of the processes that you might see in video games. You might find yourself in some kind of first person shooter game, um, stuck in a particular problem, you have to decide whether to go left or right, make a choice, there are consequences to your actions All those things that happen in a video game are exactly the same things that you might experience as part of a process drama or a role-play activity.
0: And here's another example as part of an initiative from Tate Kids, a website for 6- to 12-year-olds which aims to get kids to find out more about the arts. Wondermind is funded by the Wellcome Trust. It's an interactive game that ties art and science together using the narrative of Alice in Wonderland, based on a recent exhibition at Tate Liverpool. Shana Jackson, editor of Tate Kids, takes us through the game.
9: You have four games that illustrate a key component in children's neuro-physical development. So we give the children a bit of text up front. Small parts that make up the brain called neurons are more connected in children's brain than adult brains. So the aim of this game is to keep as many pathways open as possible while capturing the white rabbit. And this mirrors what happens in a child's brain, or in anyone's brain really. The more you use the pathways in your brain, the stronger they become. The less you use them, the quicker they die off and become redundant. The aim of this game is not just to catch the rabbit, it's actually to go in a deviant manner across the park to keep as many pathways open as possible because that's what gets you to the rabbit. And if you notice, the pathways are becoming covered up as I no longer use them. So the game ends when you can't meet the rabbit.
8: So that game had a big mass of pathways in it. Well, funnily enough, your brain does too. Click the button and you can see why.
9: So now you're led to a piece of interactive video where the kids can answer questions interactively and meet scientists who are actually working in the field.
0: So that's Shana Jackson at Take Kids playing her way through the wonder mind game. And we heard earlier Paul Jackson talking about gamification, Dave. That's something that you encourage at the Science Museum, is it?
6: It's something we do. Gamifying content is a way of taking people into that content, often when they don't realize that's what you're doing. So it's a way of starting them down a path and then you can build deeper engagement. So we have for quite a long time built interactive games, both physically in the museum and online. Large numbers of people play those and we have a physics game called Launch Ball, which has been downloaded by over six million people.
0: Some sceptics may say, well, if the kids are in there playing the games, they're not going to be taking the science too seriously. But in fact, it's the other way around
6: then, is it? It's two things. I think one is that they actually do take away the science, and we're very careful when we build games to make sure there is good scientific content in there. We're quite interested as well in actually the similarity between gameplay and the scientific process, that it's about setting up hypotheses and testing those and reviewing that and coming back in and changing things and doing things again. So by playing those games, quite often, you're learning things about scientific process as well as the content we're trying to deliver.
0: Here's another arts teaching resource. The Poetry Archive is a website which aims to, in their words, help make poetry accessible, relevant and enjoyable to a wide audience. Julie Blake, Education Manager of the Archive, explains how it's used by the teachers
1: what they use it for is playing recordings in class they particularly like that when the recordings are of poets with marked accents or where the poem makes use of dialect features that perhaps they might find difficult or uncomfortable to read aloud in class they like the fact that it brings the poem off the page. Often what they say is that students suddenly realise that poets are people When it's printed in a book on the page, it's just stuff for English. It's one of the affordances of digital technology that we can do this in a way that we couldn't do before without taking students to a live performance. And it doesn't take that away either. Often what happens is that what we hope is that students will enjoy listening to poetry as spoken word and will then think later in their lives or when there's a school trip offered or whatever, oh yes, I'd like to go and actually hear a poet. That would be a good thing to do.
0: Julie Blake of the Poetry Archive there on ways in which poetry can be brought to life in new ways. The kids can hear the accents and the dialects of the poets themselves. And uh, Max Whitby, Touch Press developed the Wasteland app, in fact, didn't it? And
5: that was bringing T.S. Eliot's poem to life in a new way, in a a similar way to this. Very much so, yes. We did that in partnership with Faber and Faber. The original title of The Wasteland was actually He Do the Police in Different Voices, (laughs) which is a Dickens quote. And actually, it's one of the keys to understanding that extraordinary poem, one of the greatest poems of the 20th century. And in the app, what we did is film Fiona Shaw, the great Irish actor, perform The Wasteland for half an hour in an empty house in Dublin. And in the course of that half hour, she essentially explains the poem with her bare teeth. She does all the different voices. And just watching and listening to her performance, you get it. In the app, we tie her performance very tightly to every line of the poem. So if you want, you can just read the poem. But if you sort of would like to bring alive one of the stanzas, you can just touch the line. Takes it back to the source text. You can The see original the source... manuscript, in fact. And indeed, see... in, indeed, we offer that as well. So yeah. it's layers of information that come on top. But the performance of the poem is something that in a classroom context, I think would be exactly one of these things I was talking about earlier, where you can really empower a teacher Just take Death by Water, a one-minute section of the poem, play that to a class, and I think you will engage a lot of minds.
0: Well, let's look at a different age group now and we're turning to a project from Oxford University, home to the Bodleian Library, which is aiming to reach out to learners of undergraduate age and beyond through digital techniques. Melissa Heighton, Director of Academic IT and Head of Learning Technologies Group at Oxford, explains the university's approach to the digital opportunities for learning.
10: One of the things that Oxford is able to do is because we have such a rich collection of all the contextual materials we are spending time digitizing those and putting up material that can be used by teachers in schools and by learners all over the world so we have a large collection called the Great Writers Inspire collection which started with Shakespeare but has actually gone on to include many other writers now and in that collection you can see learning material podcasts, videos, a lot of stuff that the academics at Oxford have recorded specially for the project, which never existed before. Conversations about the writers, um, discussions of how the topics fit in the context. And we've worked very closely with school teachers to make sure that the kinds of materials we're producing are the kinds of materials that they would be able to use and want to use in their teaching.
0: Melissa Hyten from Oxford University. Well, that Great Writers Inspire project is clearly a massive resource being made freely available. Dave Patton, is this something that we're going to see all national institutions, and I suppose is there an obligation on the publicly funded national institutions to do this sort of thing, to make all of their resources freely available, to share digitally?
6: Absolutely. We, along with lots of other big museums, are looking... Uh, how we open source all of our content. We don't have the time or the resource to tell all of the stories about all of the things we own and actually lots of other people have expertise and could use that. So we're working at the moment to get that content out to other people and to explore the ways in which other people can start to work with our content Mm. and how we bring some of that back into the museum I think we're increasingly moving away from a situation where we expect people only going to visit the museum website to get our content, they're going to expect to find our content in lots of other places, and actually the museum website isn't necessarily the first port of call for lots of people when they're doing web searches, and we want to make our content as widely available to people, and actually we don't really care where they come across it as long as they recognise that actually the content came initially from the museum.
0: Now, digital technology in the arts has often been used as a tool for allowing access to learners with disabilities. The Jody Awards, set up by an organisation called the Jody Matters Trust, recognise digital innovation that enables access to the arts for disabled people. Earlier, I asked Marcus Weizen of the Jody Matters Trust whether he foresees a time when all cultural organisations will make special provision for disabled people.
11: I would like to... completely the opposite situation, that not only do we stop thinking of something specifically for disabled people, but think for all, and that the technology that is available is actually deployed for all, so that we have a completely inclusive concept. There are so many handheld devices now, so many multimedia experiences to be had in museums, there are so-called touch screens, so everybody would think, oh, well, that's good for blind folks. Well, no, a touchscreen is completely flat, is notoriously inaccessible to a blind user unless it has been devised in a way that builds in an interface for blind users. Similarly, when we get those audio guides and multimedia guides, very seldom do the producers of guides and also the museums and cultural organizations themselves think about how can those exhibitions and collections be made accessible. This could be involving audio description of exhibits for blind and partially sighted people. It could mean providing British Sign Language. It could mean using a form of English, sometimes called Easy English, that actually could be hugely enjoyable to everyone. But beyond that, I think we have a really greater issue for museum work involved here, which is it's not just making an exhibition that has been created already accessible, but planning accessibility in right from the start within every budget. And that actually also means that one should adopt inclusive design exhibition concepts which allow maximum physical and digital accessibility for disabled people and all publics.
0: Marcus Weizen, one Jody Award winning project was run by the National Trust and used panoramic digital photography to enable access to National Trust properties. Heather Smith from the National Trust and Richard Crowest of Corviday, the company who developed the technology, explain more.
12: What was important to us as we set up the group of people who were going to lead the project was that we had a range of people with disabilities and also people who were non-disabled so that we could actually get those different points of view. So we went with some of our volunteers who are disabled who are happy to give their time. We have a gentleman who is blind. We worked with a couple of colleagues who have hearing loss. We also tried to make the designs as easy as possible to use for people with dyslexia, so we did some trialling and testing with people with those particular requirements.
7: First of all, you quite possibly find the thing running with its screensaver, which shows a selection of stills of the property and invites you to touch the screen. From there, you can choose to either look at a plan of the property, look at its floor plans and choose a room, or you can just touch the start the tour button and it will take you round the house or the park in the same sort of route that a physical visitor would take?
12: I think the virtual tours in terms of learning about National Trust properties give a variety of ways in which you can develop your own visitor experience. We talk a lot about visitor experience now in the organisation rather than the word learning as such. I think the virtual tours give an opportunity for people to delve that bit deeper than they perhaps might be able to from a general walk around visit.
7: And in each room or area, what you'll usually have is a panorama, which allows you to look right round the room, right up to the ceiling. You can zoom in on details. You can look at the things that interest you. Again, there'll be some brief introductory text about that particular room or area. But then also there'll be a number of points of interest that the property team have chosen as the most significant items in that room. The panorama will automatically turn and zoom to show you where the object is in the room.
12: One of the good things actually about the tours was that it gave us an opportunity to show aspects of the properties that nobody could get into so some of the views from the roofs for example some of the rooms that just weren't open to visitors but that we were actually happy to show in a different way i think
7: one of the key things with education particularly when it comes to heritage is the fact of context you can tell people as much information as you like about a subject you can show them photographs of an object but A virtual tour enables you to see those objects and learn about them in their context, not just necessarily the room, but the whole building, the history of that building, its development over time. And I think putting things in context, allowing people to explore and follow their own interests educationally is something that you can do with this kind of technology that you can't necessarily do with a linear format like a video, a television programme or a book in the same way.
0: Richard Croest and Heather Smith at the National Trust. Kirsten, the development of technology is happening at such a pace, isn't it? But it seems to be from what we're hearing, it's enabling more access and it's enabling education in a way that was inconceivable before.
4: Yes, it is. And I was thinking while those two were speaking just then about a company that I've recently heard of called Special Effect, whose focus is encouraging games developers to build in this accessibility from the outset. I think it's something we need to think about much, Mm. much more. It is quite easy to convert some quite complex games to be used by people with disabilities, but it's just not something that flashes across the radar of your average games developer.
0: And it's a matter of moving away from the idea of an organisation or a museum or a gallery having disabled access or access to educational resources, but just everything being accessible without
6: that differentiation. Dave? Yeah, one of the things that's really quite exciting as we move into this bring your own device world that we're sort of coming to is actually you can have the device that works for you as an individual and actually what we worry about is how we get the appropriate content onto that device. So if you are a blind person, you have a device that's with you that you know how to use, you can take that content away from. Our job is to get that content onto your device. And then we don't have to worry about having lots of kind of disparate devices in the museum, but we can still get the content to people as they want to consume it. And I think that's across the board. It's not just for people with disabilities. It means any visitor can come to the museum. You have the device that you're most comfortable with using, you know how to use it, and that's how you manage your experience in the museum. Well, let's move on again, and much of what we've been talking about in this programme revolves
0: around learning for young people, either as part of the national curriculum or outside the school environment. Um, Now let's look at lifelong learning. Alex Whitfield, Learning and Digital Programmes Manager at the British Library, tells us about the British Library learning website.
2: Online, I think we're much more focused on young people currently, and there's a completely separate section of the site, which is under redevelopment, which is the online gallery which has been the arena for lifelong learners accessing their content. But we're hoping to bring that in because everything we do does have lifelong learners as one of its core key audiences. So, for example, the History Timelines Interactive. It encourages that kind of serendipitous learning, which I think is sometimes key for lifelong learners who aren't necessarily answering an exam question or looking for a specific piece of information, but they're browsing the web. And the timeline is essentially a timeline which maps our collections, and that is the collections on the British Library Learning site, chronologically. And so you can speed through the centuries from about 1200 to the present day, And pull out collection items that you want to look at and there's curated information and links back to the main website there. And I think that really answers the need of some lifelong learners because of that serendipitous nature, I guess that non-search-based approach.
0: Alex Whitfield on the opportunities for lifelong learning at the British Library. Now back to the classroom. A recent Department of Education report said instant feedback by teachers and peers via online discussion forums enable pupils to improve their work. Often the use of technologies transformed group work in lessons, giving a real focus for greater interaction and collaboration between pupils. This all ties in with the idea of feedback loops, the two-way process of digital learning at one of the digital R&D pilot projects at the Battersea Arts Centre. Feedback loops were used to develop artistic projects. Catherine Dukes, digital producer for the Battersea Arts Centre, explains the Scratch Online project.
2: Scratch Online is trying to translate the real-life scratch process into a digital setting. And the real-life scratch process is one where artists will create work share it with an audience and get feedback on it and so what we're trying to do is create an online forum, a space for that sort of interaction to happen so artists will be able to log on to this online community, share fragments of their work with an audience and get feedback which will then inform the next iteration of their work. And this could either be through posting pictures of what they're doing or audio or it could be through video or live streaming. All the kinds of digital language that we have in our world should be brought together in a space where people can scratch work online together.
0: That's Catherine Dukes at the Battersea Arts Centre. So that's the idea of the two-way process, the creative possibilities of the so-called feedback loop. Max,
5: any more examples of the way that works? We tried to do that in another poetry title, actually, in the sonnets, Shakespeare's sonnets, which we published earlier this year. Each sonnet performed by an actor, but with all the text and so on elaborated. So uh, you can have Doctor Who, David Tennant, read a sonnet for you or... right. Patrick Stewart and we included in there a rather I suppose brave thing which is we gave away all the sonnets on our website free and we allow anyone using the sonnet to send it to a friend who has the app or to tweet it or to send it by email or post it on you know their Facebook page And that way we get a kind of dialogue going between people using the Sonnet's title and their wider group of friends.
0: Kirsten Campbell-Howes, I presume that when you are developing new apps or digital software for the educational environment, this idea of the feedback loop Mm -hmm. is absolutely vital, isn't it?
4: Absolutely. So it starts with your user testing, but ideally it continues on in the life cycle of the game. So with Soda Constructor, for example, a huge aspect of it was something that was completely beyond our control, which was the forums, where our users were building sometimes extremely complex guides on how to build particular models. And there was a huge and very, very active forum community. And in a sense, the users were educating themselves. Mm. And that is something that I think we would aim to reproduce in other products that we build. It adds this whole extra dimension to what you're creating. And sometimes you have no control over that, so you have to sort of be prepared for that.
0: So increasingly, education within the creative context is not being necessarily prescribed, but is evolving because of this two-way process.
4: Yes, and I think some of the best products allow for that to happen. They're not so constrained that you're only following a certain channel of learning. There is room there for you to develop your own theories, to share your own ideas, to take that application or whatever it is and make it your own and share that with other people who use it.
6: There's a really interesting measure of success on that as well, isn't there? You start off and it's usually a conversation between you know, the museum or the agency and a group of people. And actually, if you get to that point where you can step away from that conversation and it carries on without you, so your users are talking to each other and sustaining that. It has a life of, of its own. Yeah, that's a really interesting place to get to.
0: Well, we've looked at uh, many learning opportunities that are mainly delivered through the web, but what about physical installations and location learning? And Kirsten, I think this is something that Soda, your company, are particularly involved with. What are the benefits of location-based digital learning as opposed to taking it away, the online learning?
4: There are many. I think, for one, it's a lot more immersive. You're physically there with what you're doing and you're moving your body often with a location-based game or you're standing up or you're you're looking at things and moving around and interacting with the real environment
0: around you. And are there specific examples or anybody else that's got an example of what we're talking about here the location Based digital
6: learning what museums. Yeah, you know, museums that's what you're have doing a sense anyway. of place. So, you know, for us, you know, the really interesting experiment we're running at the moment is around Web Lab, that we built an exhibition that's physically in the museum that people can come into the museum, but also you can come online into that space and you share that space with the people that are physically in the museum. What you do is control real physical things. So you control robots, you play musical instruments, so it isn't just a screen interaction, it's an interaction with real physical devices, and it's an interaction with the other people that are in that space, be they physically in the space, or other online users that are sharing that space. It's that integration, really, between the online world and the physical world, so it's about building real physical things. I guess an example of the Internet of Things, it's a collection of big machines in the museum or big interactive pieces that are all controlled through screen based systems and you do that either by coming into the museum being in proximity of those devices or you do that online but if you do that online you see video feeds of that physical space as well and you are controlling those real things in the museum. We've been talking throughout this programme about
0: existing resources and we've reached the point in the podcast where we do a bit of crystal ball-gazing. I suppose one of the main things to have come out of this programme is that we can't ignore technology, digital technology, within the educational environment. Maybe in the future
5: it will be the way of education. We don't need teachers. We don't need schools. Max? Well, I very strongly disagree with that point of view. I think teachers always have been, always will be at the core of learning. What technology can do is amplify, help empower them, and also can customise the learning experience for students so that each individual can learn at the pace and in the subject areas that most interest them. And, you know, I think technology is all about fitting into our world, not the world changing to fit technology.
0: And, Kirsten, do you see any major developments in the next few years which are going to change the way that we understand, the way that ideas about the cultural world are learnt?
4: Oh, that's a hard question. I think what I would like to see, especially in arts and culture, is people engaging more critically with the digital products that are produced. Why don't we have a Brian Sewell of apps, for example? I would like to see mainstream news sources, papers and magazines talking about apps as a cultural concept, they sort of ignore it, I think, well, there at the are moment.
5: some really good writers, I think, here really? and in the US, uh, writing about apps. I think Stuart Dredge is really insightful. I think The Verge and The Salon and Wired in the US cover apps in a really interesting way. I think it is becoming part of our mainstream culture in, in, in a way I'm very encouraged by. When we published The Wasteland, we got an editorial in The New York Times, which completely astonished us. And I think it's a good indication that this is a form that is being taken seriously, part of our mainstream culture.
0: But I suppose, Dave Patton at the Science Museum, what Kirsten's saying there is you can't second-guess the technology because really, it because it is evolving so quickly well, yeah, I mean, and in I mean, I mean, radical new ways the whole time. You've just got to adapt to it as so, it comes So you along.
6: can kind of see the evolutionary thing. What you can't predict is revolutions in technology. But I think there are some big things on the horizon that are going to make a huge difference. So there's Google Glass and the various products around that, which are kind of you know augmented reality systems, which potentially mean. You have the entire knowledge of the human race at your fingertips all the time, and I think there are probably some quite big shifts around education that need to cope with that, and that's less about teaching people facts, and it's more about where do you go to find your information, how do you validate your sources of information, how do you be critical of information. So we might need to change the way we're thinking about things. They are products that are probably three or four years away from coming to market.
5: I think one thing that's certain in the future is that textbooks are a kind of dead industry, big printed textbooks. And the whole of the publishing industry in that academic sector, I think, is in a state of Mm. considerable disarray and turmoil, trying to work out what comes next and how they can make money. And one of the interesting things technology often does is it, to use another terrible word, disintermediates organizations. (laughs) So in other words, we don't need publishers anymore. A lot of teachers and academics and universities can directly produce material for students to consume. And that's a really exciting thing. Well, there's a lot to think about there. And we'd like to hear from you on the subjects raised in this programme.
0: Please do tweet us using the hashtag ArtsDigital. Many thanks to my guests in the studio today, Max Whitby, Dave Patton and Kirsten Campbell-House.
10: The Digital R&D Fund for the Arts is open for applications until the 30th of December 2013. To find out more information or to apply, visit artsdigitalrnd.org.uk. You've been listening to a podcast from Arts Council England. Don't forget to share and bookmark these podcasts on the Arts Council iTunes channel or at the Arts Digital r and website, artsdigitalrnd.org.uk.